BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back, Redheads. We are back with the Redheads Book Club. The gang is all here. Becky, Dana, Snitch, everyone's back together. We're back to our monthly episodes, which I think has been more manageable for everyone. We read this month, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. It was a Becky's choice. Becky, thank you so much for choosing this book. Anytime. I feel so grateful that we all had a chance to read this fantastic novel and I'm also just pleased that we took a moment to kind of like reassess the choices that we had been reading in the past which were all phenomenal but we did a little divergence for all the right reasons and I feel like it was super eye-opening in a lot of ways. Definitely. It was definitely an eye-opening book. I have so many things to say about the story and the writing and the person, and I can't wait to get into it and hear all of our thoughts. Um, But as you guys know, we chose this book in light of everything that's been going on in the country over the last month, but more so over the last years, decades, centuries. And we felt that there's never a better time than the present to really educate ourselves and immerse ourselves in stories about racial injustice in this country, the experiences of black people in this country. Maya Angelou is so awarded and celebrated and respected. And I had heard so many good things about this book and I was so glad that you chose it because it was so powerful. Oh my God. It has changed my world and it had been on my list for so long like there's a lot happening in the world for sure but beyond that I've just wanted to read this novel for so so long is it a novel I feel like it's, it's a novel memoir? oh no it's a memoir. memoir autobiography I know I I don't I like can't mischaracterize what this work of art is but yes it's been on my list for so long and I'm really glad that everyone felt empowered by the selection Yes, it's also, I think, categorized as poetry. The way that she writes, each sentence is just packed with so much meaning. Like, I would have to read a sentence multiple times to understand every single facet of it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I had to reread so many sentences because, like, I would fully miss something because so many things were, like, just happening in each sentence. Yes. Okay, so before we jump right into the recap, just want to check in on everyone. How is everyone doing? Snitch, let's start with you. I'm good. My internet connection in my apartment isn't working, so if my audio is a little off, I deeply apologize, but um, I think that will be okay, so that's my latest update. Yes, we will hopefully be okay. Um, I have a whole day to audio engineer this episode, so fingers crossed that it works out. Dana, how are you doing? I am good. I will replace my usual boring updates about my Invisalign with a more exciting update that I'm getting LASIK surgery next week, so I'm just taking advantage of the pandemic to really have some self-improvement on my mind, eyes, teeth, body, and soul. 
Wow. I'm so jealous. All I want is LASIK. I've been looking forward to it for 25 years now. I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy for you too, Dee. That's great. Thank you. Congratulations. Becky, how are you doing? I'm great. All is well. Um, I am just like living large by the beach and I am perfecting my herb garden right now um and I also have a tomato plant that is like flourishing I just kind of feel like I have a green thumb in just (laughs) really cultivating this newfound hobby of mine but I have a ton of cilantro and basil and rosemary and mint so if anybody's in the market come on over that is such a you sort of hobby. I'm surprised that you haven't gotten into it sooner. I know, right? I mean, like, this is the perfect time because, like, pandemic quarantine life just automatically means that, like, one has to start a garden if given a, a patch of grass. The opportunity. Yeah. For sure. Well, I'm happy for you. Happy for everyone. Happy to all be here again. I know that we had hoped that we would be together for this episode, but it didn't work out. Maybe next month. But honestly, I don't know that next month's going to work out either. But... We'll take it one month at a time here at the Redheads Book Club. We're just continuing yes, to honor social distancing, which I, I think that that is a blessing. Yes. And also a the curse. best policy. Definitely. Okay, well, let's jump in to I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. A brief recap. Um, I know I always recap just in case people haven't read it, but I really do hope that for this episode, everyone has read the book because it is so important and powerful and really a meaningful read. I will try to recap it. Before I do, had any of you read it before, like in school or anything? Never. I don't think so. No. Me neither. I had seen some toasters that had said that they read it like in middle school. Obviously, they're reading it again. It's it, you know, they're learning so much new information from it. Uh, but it's not something that I had read either. This feels like a very AP lit novel, definitely, which none of us embarked I, on. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't in any APs, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, okay, so I know why the caged bird sings is. Maya Angelou's memoir. It's actually her first of seven memoirs, which I found out after reading the book and reading more about her. So she chronicles the story of her life and her experience growing up in Stamps, Arkansas, but also being displaced uh, throughout her life. It's the story of up until she was 17 years old and a lot of the moments and issues that shaped her life. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri. She moved to Stamps, Arkansas t- with her brother to be raised by their grandmother. Uh, throughout her very young adolescent life, she moved around the country about seven times and experienced um, a lot of different instances of racism and sexual abuse and the story itself, which we'll get into, was just very powerful. She's a was a child who loved literature and poetry, and that is very much seen throughout the book. There are a lot of different themes that we'll touch on as we recap the book. But before we do, I just, I mean, I think I know what you guys are going to say, but overall thoughts on this book. Becky, let's start with you. I was moved. I, I mean, every word I just like ate up. I think that She's such a phenomenal way of capturing her thoughts and so eloquent and poetic and has obviously seen so much in her life but manages to have like such a 
worldly perspective on everything. And I mean, so much, so much of what I highlighted in the book was me being like, did I think like this when I was her age? Like, mm-hmm. I cannot believe that she had the perspective to just have a voice in such a mature way on like all these instances in her world. And she was so self-aware of the color of her skin and of the dynamics with her family and of the moving around. So, I mean, like my world has forever changed and I'm like forever grateful to the woman, the myth of the legend, Dr. Maya Angelou. Yes, I totally agree. And I also think that she captured the essence of girlhood and and just being a child and the way a child thinks and their imagination so aptly and especially the transition from being a girl to a young adult. Um, I thought, I've never really thought about childhood in that way, but obviously we've all experienced childhood and have had so many similar thoughts and seeing them written out and spelled out by an adult, I thought was a a very like interesting tool. Absolutely. Dana, what do you think? I too loved this book. At times it didn't feel like I was even reading a book. I felt like I was reading a poem or like a beautiful song, which I really, really enjoyed. Like you, Snitch, I had to reread a lot of sentences again, not because it was burdensome or that I felt like I wasn't paying attention, but because the lyricism was so beautiful that I wanted to make sure I captured every ounce of meaning that she was trying to convey. Mm Because it was just such a wise book. Like I feel like she was just imparting life lesson after life lesson after life lesson, which was so joyous to read. And at times I like almost forgot where I was in the book or what time period it was or in what state she was, but that didn't take away from the book. If anything, it enhanced it because I felt like the book's effectiveness was that not that you were supposed to focus on one particular scene or one particular moment. It was all the moments combined that made up her life. That was just the fluidity of the book I loved. I I thought it was a masterpiece. Yeah, definitely. Can I quickly add something? Mm -hmm. I went into the book kind of like with my preconceived notions of like how all books typically go that it's like a beginning a middle and end so I expected all of the chapter chapters to bleed into each other and really build on each other so at the start of the book I was a little confused because I was like I can't like it's not tracking for me all the time and then when I finally realized it was kind of just a compilation of short stories that's when it like hit into overdrive for me and I was like okay I'm obsessed like now I understand and like I'm hitting full throttle yes yeah I had the same exact reaction snitch Honestly, I loved the book. Also, what you just said, Dana, about it being like a song, I was thinking that the whole time, that it felt like music, which not that I think that this has anything to do with the title, but it's you can bring it into I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Like, it really was just like, it felt not like felt like a song, but I can't explain it. The way that she wrote, it felt like music. I don't know. I yeah. had that thought, too, and I'm glad that I wasn't the only one to, like, have that thought because I just thought it didn't make sense, but maybe it does. Anyway... Honestly, I couldn't agree more. What shocked me so much was how well she was able to talk about her thoughts as a child and, like, eloquently say them because I can't remember anything from my childhood, let alone what I was thinking. So it was just, Mm -hmm. like, crazy to, like, read and, like, she just, like, said everything that she wanted to so well and she just, like, hit every point and I think that, like, every reader genuinely learned something from, like, every single short story. Yeah, there was not one word wasted, you know? And I think that a lot of the books that we read now, even on for the book club, like they're very colloquial and 
and you can read it almost mindlessly and if you kind of skim a paragraph you didn't miss that much but in this book like if you skimmed a paragraph like you missed a lot of meaning and you had to back up yes yeah Okay, great. Well, let's get into some of the major themes in the book. There were really so many, um, but one of the biggest themes is racism in this book. Maya Marguerite is raised in the early years of her life in Stamps, Arkansas, which is extremely segregated, so segregated that she as a child didn't really even believe that white people existed. And a lot of her friends and schoolmates didn't know what white people looked like. That part, like, legitimately shocked me. Like, I was so taken aback because, like, honestly, like, that that makes sense when she says it, but it's not something I ever would have thought. And that, like, that just, like, really just put everything into perspective of, like, how segregated it was because, like, they didn't even see them. So, like, yeah, you hear all these stories, but you never see them. Do they exist? It's crazy. It is crazy. It's, like, this group of people that you know, from in the background has so much control over how they live and their lives. And and they're so segregated to the point where they don't even know of each other or mingle whatsoever in the same town. However, despite not really believing, quote unquote, that white people even exist, like that's how segregated they are. They were still so self-aware of the color of their skin and like their place in society because of that. And that's also interesting to think about that, like, even though you're not confronted with white people all the time necessarily, like, talking down to you, you still have this mindset of feeling just like a lower person in society and that it permeates your entire morning, noon, and night. And that's how these societies were born and and raised to think like. It's really so upsetting, but, like, I, I mean, it also reminded me kind of of, like, people who've, like, never met a Jew before and expects Jews to, like, have horns, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It, it seemed like the most interaction, at least in the beginning, that they had with white people is how they described, I think, po-white people, which were, like, the poor white girls. And that was interesting because they were on a similar level, monetary and poverty-wise, but they still spoke down to Mama, who was the boss of the store, and... Uh, Maya was so shook by the interaction that went down where they were taunting her, even though at the end it sounded like Mama like stood her ground and the her silence didn't indicate defeat. If anything, it was like pot positioned her to stand up to the poor white people. And even that interplay between race and poverty at the same time, I thought that was an interesting like part of the book how they would come to the store and they still couldn't afford much but they still had the audacity to talk down to her just because of the color of their skin right and they were living on her land and because they were white they felt that they could speak this way to a, a respected older woman to any person but l- let alone someone as res- like fabulous honestly as mama yeah, she was fabulous. She was one of my favorite characters in the book. I mean, mm-hmm. there there were so many great characters. I just, I, I loved so much about her. She was such a strong person. She was such a great parent, you know? Yeah, I loved the informal mama contrasted with like mother dear and mother when they spoke of their actual parents who didn't end up being bad people either, but it just highlighted how mama was just the loving one who really raised them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was honestly, like, really upset when she 
when they left Stamps and went to go live with Mother Dear, like, full-time, because, like, I was going to miss Mama as a character. Me too. And I think Maya felt the same way. I think that there was a lot in St. Louis that was great for the children. And I also think being around the personality of their mother dear, um, who was quite different from their grandmother, was also really beneficial. But the, you know, the familial unit that they had in Stamps was really so beautiful. They were all really there for each other and looked after one another. And family's another big theme in this book and I just I really enjoyed reading about her family yeah I love the uncle there was a there was a line I loved where the dad came back momentarily and picked them up and was all flashy in his car and his mannerisms and there Maya acknowledged something how eventually he had to leave because mama was never going to abandon the crippled son who like deserved so much more of her attention and love and I thought that was an interesting contrast of how like you might think that a mama would be more infatuated or love more but want to spend more time with the son but no her loyalties lied with those who actually needed her yeah and also the one who didn't like leave her too (laughs) yeah that too (laughs) Yeah, it felt like she really had, like, such an incredible head on her shoulders. Like, just knew how to allocate her love appropriately to the person who is in need the most. Like, when she Mm -hmm. took Maya to the dentist, when she was, like, in so much pain. And Maya was like, wow, like, we had never gone on a train together before and, like, felt so comforted by having Mama with her and almost, like, like excited to have her by her side despite this toothache that was debilitating. Yeah, Yeah, and when she was, like... When they were, I think, either on the train or the bus, and she said that Mama had put her arm around around her, and she was like, she's never done that yeah. before. She knew she Those were it. some great, powerful scenes. Also, there were some incidents that Maya discusses where she's confronted by overt instances of racism, like at her graduation, and reading that chapter was so upsetting at first it was it couldn't have been a brighter more exciting day and I feel as though throughout her childhood you know she was more inward in terms of you know more of an introvert is what we would call her now and to see her be so excited about graduation and like really excited about the community and to have that speaker really take that away from all of those kids was so sickening yeah she was tender-hearted that was a that was a rough scene that was one of the most like powerful heartful yes yeah. one line that stood out to me she said it was awful to be a negro and have no control over my life it was brutal to be young and already trained to sit quietly and listen to charges brought against my color with no chance at defense yes that one that I one was like wow she was so aware like so so incredibly self-aware about what was happening and I, it seemed like everyone sort of was she like looked around the auditorium and everyone was like peace like we cannot be spoken to like this and yet we will sit here and have it and take it she she was so self-aware which is why and jumping a little it was almost like comic relief when we got to the end and she was unsure of whether she was a lesbian because she only read about it in books and had no idea like about self-identity that was just so like not off brand but compared to all the other insight and knowledge and self-awareness that she had to then not know about that factor of life was almost like, okay, we're reminded that she still is a 16-year-old. Like, she doesn't have all the answers. 
but that also go but but that also just goes to show how little information there was at the time like like she went to the library she tried to learn but there weren't books about it so what else mm-hmm. was she supposed to do I also felt like she was so funny like the book yeah. I know it's so serious and yeah. she's a poet um but she's also really funny and the way that she would describe certain people uh for instance the the white woman that she worked for who tried to call her Mary which uh we'll discuss her attempting to change her name but when she was talking about how she had married someone like of a lower stature and in her inner monologue Maya was like she should be happy to have married anyone like she's quite (laughs) ugly and I just like there was some like shadiness throughout the book that of course is just like beautifully said that I really appreciated like she's funny she was just so freaking brutally to the point it was epic yeah it was epic refreshing Okay, another major theme in the book was resistance. And the form of resistance that a lot of the characters take is very different from one another. I think one of the biggest forms of resistance that stood out to me was the Black community's involvement in the church and their dedication to their faith. There was one chapter, uh, Maya talks about it feels like disrespectful to call her Maya. Like I want to say Miss and Professor Angelou. Like Doctor <laughs> Doctor Maya Angelou. She talks about religion a lot throughout the book because it was such a big part of her childhood and her upbringing and her life. But there was one chapter in general that really um, that was really dedicated to a, a particular sermon where the entire congregation really felt uplifted and and moved and felt in resistance to the situation that they were in and I always think about religion in that way how it is this sort of salvation especially in the hardest of times I feel like people you know cling more to religion when times are tough versus when times are easy uh, even for me myself personally and I thought that that was a major form of resistance on their part and it really to me, when I think about the title, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, like I think about the church and these people who are under so much oppression and living in a world that is completely and meant to be unfair towards them. And they have more faith in the in God than anyone else. There was an interesting line that she said that was like, the poorer you are, the more you attribute happenings to God. And then the richer you get, you tend to attribute it to your own accomplishments. And I I liked that because it's true. Like if once you become successful, people tend to forget God and they never forgot God. Mm -hmm. It's actually Jackie, such a good um, kind of interpretation of the title of the book. Cause I feel like it can be interpreted in like so many different ways, but that like actually really makes a lot of sense to me because like church and the singing in church was such a common, like she had mentioned it many times. So I just wanted to say that I liked that because I didn't think of it. I think it's meant to have so many interpretations of, and it's and especially it's based on a poem. But I think it's it's meant for you to visualize this bird, this cage, and this song. Yeah. Okay, another major theme is womanhood between sex and gender, sexuality and identity. Maya discusses, you know, her entire adolescence and a lot of the feelings she had around being a girl, even at times she wished that she was a boy. She has a very traumatizing sexual experience at the age of eight years old. Reading that chapter was was heart-wrenching. Yeah, that was brutal. Yeah. I actually had to like take a break from the book for a bit yeah. after I read that chapter. Mm-hmm. Like it just 
made me sad. Yeah, it definitely gives you pause. And how physically sick her she got. Like, her body just totally, like, shut down. And it's yeah. just, it was very, it was tragic. And she didn't speak for a few years after. And I thought that was interesting in the book because she didn't speak in the wake of trauma. And she mentioned how Bailey, her brother, had a similar coping mechanism, which they described as his soul going to sleep. Whenever, like, really horrible racial things happened, he just would clam up and not talk and compartmentalize and shut down. And in, like, connection with the resistance theme, it was almost a way to cope and, like, stop for a second when it got too much and not speak. But eventually, as she was taught by Mrs. Flowers, I think her name was, the one who brought her out of her reverie and, like, started introducing her to books and speaking again, like, they found power and resistance in the best thing you could do, which is education and learning and reading. And that's, I think, like, a very powerful tool that got them out of those times where they were on... They were flappable. They couldn't maintain, like, any sort of composure. And their souls went to sleep, as they described it. Yeah. Also, in terms of being, like, a girl and a woman, I thought she put it really aptly when she discusses how after she was raped, she was silent and she had turned... She had ceased being a girl. But when she makes a friend, Louisa... She says that they would giggle together and when they were playing, she said, I don't think she understood half of what she was saying herself, but after all, girls have to giggle. And after being a woman for three years, I was about to become a girl. That was a great line. Yes. Oh, that was such a good line. That line, like, took me down. I was like, I was like, yes, like, please be a girl. You've been through too much. 100%. Another theme in the book is language. I'm actually going to throw to you, Dana, because um, Maya's love for poetry and literature, Jane Eyre, and all of the books and characters that she would read about really transported her and um, inspired her throughout her young adult life. Yeah, well, one, I just back to her being funny. I loved how she loved Shakespeare, but was like almost afraid to admit it because he was like this big white poet. And she was like, yeah, that was fucking hilarious. That was hilarious. I love the juxtaposition between her love for books and words and also her realization that speaking out loud held equal, if not more importance. Like when she was silent, they, she was instructed that like, you can't live your life behind books. You have to speak it out loud because it has such a different meaning and inflection, which she seemed to carry with her through her whole life. Like when her mom was teaching her all the mantras and all the lessons, she was like, she's really just like regurgitating old themes, but the way that she's saying it and the enunciation and the pronunciation that her mom attributed to these phrases held such power over her. And as snitch agreed with like the whole book itself was just a play on language it was a poem it was a lyric it was a song like language is just important and it it catapulted us into a different world and it's just a means for advancing in the world yeah also a scene that stuck out to me um when after she was raped and she had ceased speaking and she goes to Mrs. Flowers' house. And I loved the relationship between the two of them. And Mrs. Flowers had heard that she was not talking. And she said to her, um, Maya wrote, language is man's way of communicating with his fellow man. And it is language alone which separates him from the lower animals. That was a totally new idea to me and I would need time to think about it. Mrs. Flowers said, your grandmother says you read a lot. Every chance you get, that's good, but not good enough. Words mean more than what is set down to paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with the shades of deeper meaning. 
damn. I, I, I so feel, like, I don't know, that really resonated with me. I feel like you can read and read and read, but at a certain point, it's, it's what you say based on how that affects what you say that really means more. I mean, that's my, you know, idiotic take no, on agree. what I just read. But also, that interestingly connects with the Joe Lewis fight when they were all listening mm-hmm. to the radio she said it would all be true the accusations that we were lower types of human beings if he were to lose and that's why they felt like there was so much riding on this fight because it was an opportunity for a black man to be the greatest athlete the strongest man in the world so it was kind of proving to the world that black people are as equally capable as the rest of the world and this is our way of showing you and so that quote, Jackie, it really nicely connects to a quote that she had in an earlier part of the book. So it's like she has kind of surfaced that theme a few times. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, let's get into some of our DBQs because we have some good ones. I mean, there is no dearth of Reader's Guide questions on this book. So I tried to choose some of the ones that we might have not discussed in our themes and some of the the biggest questions um, that we can answer here. So Maya Angelou begins her autobiography with a moment of public humiliation in church. Why do you think she chose this scene in particular? Do themes in this scene reappear throughout the memoir? I felt like it was so raw and forthcoming, which I felt like were themes throughout that she was just wholly honest with thoughts, perspectives, sentiment in many of the short stories and so I felt like she set the stage of like this is not going to be necessarily pretty or comfortable or soothing throughout but this is my life and like buckle up you're about to learn a lot about me yeah yeah I thought the same I think I thought that I thought it was like her way of basically like setting the stage of like this isn't just, like, an ordinary book or an ordinary life story. Like, this is going to be different than, like, some anything else that you've ever read. Yeah, I also think that every yeah. element of that scene really encompasses a, a lot of the major themes in the rest of the book. For example, she's in a church and she's reciting a poem and she's feeling insecure and she's so aware of herself and she's feeling embarrassed. And these are feelings that continue to come up throughout the book. And so I think... I feel as though this is her way of like summing up her childhood, you know, you know, when like something happens to you and you're like, everything about that is so me. Yes. You know? Yeah. This was so Maya. Yeah. So Maya. Yeah. The the church was really such a like centerpiece of the whole book. Like it bore witness to everything. Like in the beginning, her humiliation later when her and Bailey like could not stop laughing. Like it was just always there. And so I agree. It set the scene and it paved the way for much larger themes in the whole book. Yeah, definitely. Also, we haven't discussed yet Oprah Winfrey's forward, which I loved. Me too. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved hearing about the friendship between the two of them and how and how close they were and how similar their lives had been. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting because it's like we read this book and we're like, wow, like that's so crazy or like that. I can't believe that was her childhood. But then you read a forward from someone like someone else and they're like, I related to that so much. And just like opens your eyes to the fact that like this isn't just one person's story. This is like many other people's stories. Yeah. And a lot of these 
stories are not isolated incidents. And this sort of feeling growing up as a young black girl, especially in the South, this wasn't just Maya feeling this way. Like, this is what was happening. Right. I, like, found myself reading it and thinking of what Oprah was thinking, like, on every page. I was like, did Oprah like this part? Like, which? Yes. Yeah, like, oh, my God. I was, like, reading it through I the eyes of Oprah. I found myself being reminded of Oprah <laughs> yeah. very often because also Oprah, you know, I don't know what a forward is always meant to do, but what she does is really sort of outline some of the big things that that stuck out to her in the book. And, and so when those things did happen, I was like, oh, Oprah read this. Same. I was like reading yeah. it through the eyes of me, but like also through Oprah and wondering what she felt. I love totally. hearing your guys' perspective because like I didn't feel that way once, but like I, I obviously loved the forward, but like I never <laughs> thought about Oprah again. But during the forward, I most certainly did. And I definitely recognize that this was many people's stories, not just one. Um, but I also like, I found myself highlighting passages starting at the forward. One thing that that Oprah highlighted that she loved about Maya was a line that said, when you learn, teach, she said frequently, when you get, give. And I was like, amen. Yeah, like Oprah, Maya to Oprah was what so many characters in the book were to Maya. And I liked how it just kept passing down generation That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, next question. The title, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, is a reference to a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Why do you think that Angelo chose this title? Honestly, I feel like it's the whole, I feel like it's the way to say that like cage bird because like they kind of were cage birds in the sense of like they were so segregated and they were just so looked down upon and it was like they didn't really have this like sense of freedom so it was like they were caged but like even though that they were caged, they were still able to, like, build their own in somewhat happy lives. Like, they had a whole, like, system of, like, of the way that their world works. Like, every morning the store would open. Like, they had a rhythm. So I feel like it was just, like, Mm -hmm. even that they got, like, such a bad situation, they still somehow were able to, like, have some happiness. And, like, that was them singing. Does that make sense or makes more sense in my head? Yeah, no, that that's exactly how I saw it, too. I felt like it kind of references a beautiful creature being confined because I felt like she often felt confined in her own skin and in her life, like not able to just like exercise who she truly was by simply the color of her skin or just by insecurity, you know? Um, and at one point she says it seemed terribly unfair to have a toothache and a headache and have to bear at the same time the heavy burden of blackness. And so, I mean, like, mind blown, truly. So I feel like at, at it's as if she's saying that despite being confined, she can exercise her voice and live her life and change the course that she feels has been predetermined for her. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I see that. I, I actually had another interpretation, too. Do you mind? No, please. <laughs> Go for it. Because um, when I read the foreword, um, Oprah, I don't know if it was like a quote from the poem, but it says, we are more alike than we are unalike. The truth is why we can all have empath- empathy, why we can all be stirred when the cage bird sings. So it's kind of like grounding everyone at the same playing field and like just bringing us all down like we are humans and that is the end of the story wow yeah 
She knows why the cage bird sings. She knows that we as human beings, regardless of the color of our skin or our class, we can be moved. And empathy can be triggered when the cage bird sings, no matter what. I like that. Yeah. Wow. I like that, too. I had highlighted that, too, but I hadn't put it together. No, I love I mean, that. I don't know. I, that's what I initially thought. And, like, then I was like, maybe it's, like, confined, like, a cell. So then I started thinking that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought, like, like the caged bird, Maya was restrained and she was confined by the racism and oppression that she dealt with. But despite everything that they could take away from her in that regard, they couldn't take away her spirit or her soul or her singing. So I just thought it was a metaphor for, like, they can lock her up in all these different ways, but she can choose to use her inner strength to resist it and break out. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, next question. How does Angelou describe her molestation and later her rape at the hands of Mr. Freeman? Were you surprised by her emotions? Was this terrible experience the defining moment of the novel or of Angelou's childhood? Why or why not? I mean, I thought the way that she had, like, not handled it, but, like, her thought process, you have to remember that she's eight years old. She doesn't, she didn't, like, she doesn't even know that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. So, like, the first time when he touched her, she, like, was ashamed to admit that she had liked it or whatever, like, felt good for her. But, like, she didn't know that it should or it shouldn't. So, it's, like, her thought process is, like, there's no way for you to even really comment on that unless it's happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In terms of a defining moment, I completely think this was a huge one in her life. I also, like, for defining moments, one that I thought was really impactful was when she was in the junkyard later on, because that was like the first time yes. that she didn't really feel defined by her race because she was with Mexicans, she was with whites, she was with other blacks, and like she shed some of that insecurity that was with her so intensely throughout the whole book. So that scene coupled with this rape scene, I think were two hugely defining moments. I completely agree. That scene or the summer that she lives in the junkyard and she comes out of it, obviously, you know, looking at the world differently. She she says she comes home and, and the adults even look different to her. They're not just like all adults anymore, these impenetrable adults. Like because she's really matured and been on her own, she's less of a child and more of an adult mm-hmm. as well. But also in the way that she viewed tolerance and, you know, being with people – that were not like her. It was like nothing mattered in the junkyard except for who you were. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And like what you contributed because they like shared everything. Yes. Yeah. I felt like it defined the the younger part of her childhood because she had this reaction. I mean, she said it herself. She's like, obviously I forfeited my place in heaven like because right. of what had happened. And she went into that period where she wasn't speaking so I felt like it it definitely permeated so much of her youth and I I felt the junkyard and and learning how to drive stick in the middle of Mexico in the (laughs) nighttime was like those kind of two instances coupled together started a pivot for her into like casting that shell that had defined so much of her youth which she couldn't help but it was interesting to see that take shape. Yeah. Oh, one scene that I really, like, touched me was when Bailey was, like, 
pretending to have sex with all the girls in the tent and she was the lookout and then finally one girl actually knew what she was doing and attempted to and it became clear from Billy's responses that he didn't know and it was such a sad reversal of age or maturity when she stepped in and was like I can't have Bailey suffer through this the way I did like I know exactly what sex entails and he doesn't and I need to be the protector that was a scene that stood out to me yeah it it really was it's also interesting how you know she describes her thought processes as a child with limited information um beyond you know what she could get in a library or at school nowadays kids like have access to the internet and and I think I you know I haven't spoken to a kid in a while um but like you know if they wanted to know how sex works like they can just google it and to get this information for the children like in the ways that they were able to you know it was just interesting because it's from such a different time than the one that even we grew up in versus the one that we're in now right which is why I also think back to the whole lesbian thing like there wasn't information for her to even look up or get answers to any of her questions so it's like in order to go through these, like, life moments, it's like they just didn't have, like, the access to the knowledge that could have just, like, I think helped. Yeah. More. That's something that I feel like I've been seeing a lot in books, especially memoirs um, where people recount their childhood and the thoughts that they had um, before they knew better. And it's just always – it's, it's like, cute and sweet how kids think. But it also, when it comes to matters of, like, sex and, and reproductivity – you need like knowledge is power and kids need to know yeah yeah so I thought that was interesting okay next question quote every person I knew had a hellish horror of being called out of his name and when Mrs. Cullinan renames her Mary she exacts her revenge can you think of other examples of naming and renaming in the book what do you think it means to be called out of one's name question mark I feel like it means being recharacterized as if your core and identity is disposable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, like, yeah. I can't think of any worse feeling. And, I mean, it's just, it, it feels like just as a whole you're being degraded. Um, and I thought it was, like, a, a very interesting, I think this is a really interesting question because um, I hadn't really thought about it. And that's exactly what it means, I think. Yeah. Like, on its face, to call someone something other than their name is disrespectful. But given the history of this and the racism behind it, I I feel as though this this chapter and Maya discussing it in the way that she did gave me a whole new perspective on it. Like, no, it's it's not just disrespectful. Like, it's deeply offensive and you're, you're assigning characterization to someone's complete being and that's not anyone's place to do that for another person yeah and it it echoes like the unfortunate long-standing history of white people using derogatory names to refer to black people so it's definitely that your identity is intertwined with your name and by dismissing it you're eroding the person you are but it also has historical undertones where you're disrespecting the entire race yeah yeah and in the story Hallelujah was Glory's original name, and she got recharacterized or renamed as Glory. Right. Like, that was just another instance it's where it happened. So crazy. And again, Maya was it, funny when she was yeah. like, wait, what? That was your original name? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, next, we are going to get into our redhead question. We only got one question this week, but it is a big one. 
One salient theme of this book was religion slash faith. Despite the challenging circumstances of her life, Maya retained much of the faith that she learned from her grandmother. One line that struck this reader on page 53 was, quote, of course I knew God was white too, but no one could have made me believe he was prejudiced, unquote. This was a heartbreaking yet telling line. That racism bled into every system of Maya's life, but she was able to hold tight to her faith anyway and see God as good. Did you feel that Maya clung to her faith because it was taught to her as a young child or because she found that her faith helped her to go through life more easily or for some other reason? I think it's a little bit Mm -hmm. of both. Like when you grow up with like faith and religion being so prevalent in your life, like there's no way for that not to have an effect on you. But also like what we were saying before, like the worse off you are, the more you like believe and need God. Whereas like once you're successful, like you don't really lean on him that much. So I feel like it's a little bit of that, but also, like, I feel like when, if you don't have God to turn to when things get so bad, like, who else do you turn to? Yeah. And I also think that, especially when it relates to faith, you know, you can be raised in a very religious household and then you grow older and you change sort of your feelings about it or you amend them to your life now. Um, But I, I think that when you're, most children who are, actively religious like they're always the kids in the pews who are like antsy and don't really want to be there so when Maya's recounting her experience in the church and sure and her brother are laughing and like some of it you know they kind of didn't get I think that's very normal child behavior um but I think she continues to take her faith with her yes because it's it's so much of what she knows but I think also because of the way she feels about it personally. I don't believe it was just because she was raised that way. I think faith is too much of a big thing in your in anyone's life that if you don't fully believe, then it's not something you're going to take with you when you no longer have to go to church every Sunday with your grandma. Yeah. One yeah. of the quotes that I loved was, life is going to give you just what you put in it. Put your whole heart in everything you do and pray and then you can wait. Like even when they're talking about the sheer definition of ambition and going out and getting what you want and pulling yourself up, they still have to incorporate the pray part where like, no matter what you do though, you'll always be privy to God and he is overseeing everything. So I think, I do think it colored her entire life, not just because she was raised that way, but because she believed it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess we have to read memoirs two through seven to um, find out the rest. I actually hope that like in the next few years, I get a chance or I make the time to read more of her books because I thought actually when I started this book I figured it was a memoir and chapter one would be her childhood and chapter 20 would be her at age 80 you know I mean I know that it wasn't written when she was 80 it was written in the 60s but I thought you know it would be her career and so I was towards the end of the book I started to realize that wasn't the case um and I was grateful to see that there were more memoirs with more of her story but I did think it was going to be you know her whole life up until the point that she had written it, but it wasn't that. And I'm, I'm actually really grateful because I think that this formative period of her life, there was so much there and I can't even imagine what's in store in in the rest of the books. Yeah. If for nothing else, I want to read the rest of her stories because of her writing Mm -hmm. technique and the message that she's able to convey with her words. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, next up, we are going to get into the moral of the story. But before we do, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Book of the Month. 
Book of the Month is a super popular and fast-growing online book service for readers. Their mission is to promote new and emerging authors and help readers discover books they love. Their team vets hundreds of books each month and gives readers their choice from a curated selection of new and early release titles so you can spend more time reading and less time researching. I spend almost as as much time researching what I'm going to read next as I do as on actually reading the book, which is so crazy and also why I love Book of the Month. Book of the Month is risk-free. You can skip any month, any time, and you will not be charged. Plus, they have the best price for new release fiction. Start today and get your first book for just $9.99 with code BOOKCLUB. So this month, they obviously have five great selections. I chose Mexican Gothic to read. It sounds like such a great story, a mistake a mystery, a glamorous mystery, which you know I love, and I can't wait to read it. So if you want book of the month and start today to get your first book for just $9.99 with the code book club, head over to bookofthemonth.com to check out their other picks and use code book club to get your first book for $9.99. Okay, let's get into the moral of the story. Considering it's a memoir, I mean, every story has a moral, but I feel like the moral of the story is that Maya Angelou was everything of the sort, um, genius. I feel like the Lady Gaga meme, like fabulous, never been done before, put in the blender, mix it up. Like she is Mm -hmm. just all of that. Um, But as it relates to the larger moral of this story, what did everyone think it was? Dana, let's start with you. I'm just going to bring it back to the title, which it showcases, you know, oppression and racism and makes you realize that these are real issues that existed and still exist in our country, but that if you maintain your inner spirit and you sing and you speak from the heart and you educate yourself, then you'll have the tools and the resources to hopefully gain knowledge and potentially overcome some of that. Yeah, definitely. Becky? My moral was that we are more alike than we are unalike. Ooh, I love that. I like that, too. I felt like it connected to the title, and I felt like it was sort of perhaps what the title was looking to convey. And I just felt like throughout each of her short stories, that that could have been, like, the, the outcome the your mindset after each of them in some way shape or form like with one facet yeah i love yeah. that i love that no yeah i i'm switching mine to that also because it's like <laughs> um it i feel like no matter what who you are where you came from in each of each story that she told you could find something to relate back to your mm-hmm. own life and i think as much as it is a very relatable story of of growing up um it also is an important and historical story about um living in the segregated south and and what this country has what people in this country have been through and what people in this country have done and i think that in order to move forward we need to learn our history and obviously at times in this book like it's an uncomfortable history to have to confront but it is more important than ever also, I find it so interesting to, like, learn about segregation in the South and all that stuff, like, from textbooks in school versus, like, reading one person's story and, like, the every ex- life experience that they had. Like, I don't know. It's just so interesting to me to, like, read it from that point yeah, of view. Yeah, because it's one thing to read it in a textbook that it's just facts and this is how it was, but to read one person's experience of how that made her feel and how that made her daily life experience, 
it's more than you could really ever I mean, coupled with the facts and information, it really paints a picture of what life was like. Yeah, and it just makes you think of, like, every other person's story. Like, all of her friends. How, what was Louise's story? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Definitely. There's a, a story that someone I know recommended called The Warmth of Other Suns, which is, uh, it follows three people escaping the South during segregation, and it's nonfiction, so that could be interesting to read. Oh, that's a great rec. Yeah. Thank you. Anytime. It's funny, Rit, because I don't know if you guys have seen Jojo Rabbit, but it's about the Holocaust kind of told through the lens of Nazi Germany. And the underlying message I took away from that was like, we are more alike than we are different. And it just shows how far reaching those messages and morals and implications can have for any situation where there's an imbalance of power or oppression. Like, if we all just realize that we're more alike than unalike, then perhaps we could obtain world peace and like get along sooner than later. Yes. I also think that this sort of feeling relates back to Codename Helene when we talked about, we, yes, we know about World War II, but we don't know about what it was like to be a fabulous French non-Jew <laughs> living in war-torn France and how your life really on a, the day-to-day basis is affected by it and so I think and it adds color to you know a historical moment that we all knew about and I feel as though this story does a very similar thing okay well next segment is not something that we do for every episode but definitely something I wanted to do in this episode because we can talk and talk but um Maya Angelou's words deserve to be heard on their own so this next segment is our kindle highlights i've asked each of the redheads including myself to choose two quotes uh from the book that stood out to them for one reason or another something that we haven't shared yet um and just discuss so i'll go first uh because i have two very different quotes and the first one i will start on a lighter note because i discussed earlier in the episode how i really loved the way that Maya wrote and how she thought and spoke and how every word has so much meaning, every sentence has so much meaning. And there was this one paragraph that, the, the message of the paragraph is something that we say in everyday life all the time, like about how weekdays are the worst and the weekends are the best, you know? But this is how Maya Angelou yeah. describes it as poetry, like that same sentiment. Weekdays revolved on a sameness wheel. They turned into themselves so steadily and inevitably that each seemed to be the original of yesterday's rough draft. Saturdays, however, always broke the mold and dared to be different. Chills. I just love that from a like yeah. a language point of view. I feel like every day on the toast, Claudia and I are like, it's the Mondayest Monday ever, you know? And <laughs> it's something I'm sure my Angela had Monday Mondays, but she had a much more eloquent way of saying them. And I really appreciated <laughs> the way that she wrote that. Jax, I think it's so beautiful that you were able to find a Maya Angelou quote that so perfectly encapsulates like your, like that is very you. Yeah, no, that's that, that's so toasty, really. Yeah. <laughs> also, the next quote was more of um, an encounter that she had had with the woman who was working at the desk of the job that she wanted. And Maya writes, the miserable little encounter had nothing to do with me, the me of me, any more than it had to do with that silly clerk. The incident was a recurring dream concocted years before by stupid whites, and it eternally came back to haunt us all. The secretary and I were like Hamlet and Laertes in the final scene where, because of harm done by one ancestor to another, we were bound to duel to the death, also because the play must end somewhere. 
And so I think that that scene really captures like the racism that Maya experienced on a day-to-day basis. And even though there was nothing wrong with this particular clerk, you know, she was just acting out a scene that it's, we are, we were all just acting out based on things that our ancestors had done. Like we were doomed to this fate based on people that we didn't even know the actions of those people, you know? Jackie, that was the same quote that I was about to read to the class. You're lying. I'm not lying. It literally just spoke to me to the core because it's still happening to this day. We are still acting out this play that we feel like we have to because that has been society and ancestry for since this test of time. And it's so disturbing. And the last line of that quote is I went further than forgiving the clerk I accepted her as a fellow victim of the same puppeteer wow I mean it's like but you know what's crazy about that like she went even further later on in the passage to be like you know what never mind scrap all of that like what do you mean scrap all that that was beautifully written and you're like now changing your mind it just shows that she can like say things so eloquently without even thinking to be like I take it all back like she is not a victim she is a perpetrator of racism and screw her and I'm gonna get this job like even that eloquence was then retracted for something even more beautifully said like she's just pumping them out that quote really hit me in a way I was uh, I was like my mind was actually blown so yeah I can't believe you chose the same one that means it's it's a real one totally Okay, what was your other one? My other quote was plucked from when Bailey was leaving home after he and his mom recognized that, like, they loved each other almost to the point of, like, suffering. And Maya was standing by the door kind of watching him pack. And she said, My tears were not for Bailey or mother or even myself, but for the helplessness of mortals who live on the sufferance of life. In order to avoid this bitter end, we would all have to be born again and born with the knowledge of alternatives. Even then, and I just felt like she was so, she was just looking at her life. It felt like she was like looking down on her life from above and Mm -hmm. seeing it all play out and like experiencing every emotion, emotion involved and was just kind of just like sad that like this is life and we're going to feel it every step along the way and like to avoid it we would just have to start over yeah that's a great one snitch would you like to share yes of course i would like to share okay so my first one is from page six where she says if growing up is painful for the southern black girl being aware of her displacement is the rust on the razor that threatens the throat where because this whole time you've been saying like how aware she is but like now reading that it's like that this like sentiment of like kind of how like ignorance is bliss in the sense of like it would have been so much easier for her to like not really understand or realize why the color of her skin was like really like had such an effect on her but because of like how aware she was it was just like just not the cherry on top, but it was the rust on the razor that threatens the throat. Like, I can't think of any other way to think the same, yeah. you know? Yeah, I had that one highlighted, too. Um, and then the last one, it was on page 309, where she said, See, you don't have to think about doing the right thing. If you're for the right thing, then you do it without thinking. Which I just think is, like, a sentiment that you, like, can bring through your life for, like, the rest of time. And, like, something that I will be thinking about, like, just going. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good one. That's a great takeaway, like, from this reading. 
I so understand why people can read this book so many times. Like, no yeah. matter... Yeah, because you can find new, like, yeah. tidbits of just, yeah. like, amazing, like, things that just make yes. life lessons. That's what Oprah said. Definitely. And so many of the redheads said it, too. Dana? Um, okay, my first quote, which I loved, was, Without willing it, I had gone from being ignorant of being ignorant to being aware of being aware. And the worst part of my awareness was that I didn't know what I was aware of. Yeah. I feel that like it doesn't my, even need that an was explanation. Like my three. That one, it just, that one's crazy. It's so good. And then my second one is a little lighter and not, doesn't showcase her eloquence as much, but I still thought it was powerful. Hoping for the best, prepared for the worst, and unsurprised by anything in between. That was what she used to describe Mother Dear when she was asking about her vagina <laughs> and lesbians. And I just thought that was like a simply said but great approach to life. If you always are hoping for the best but prepare for the worst then you'll be okay with your reactions no matter what you're told. yeah also just a great takeaway that is applicable to anyone at any time totally okay mm-hmm. great well thank you guys for sharing now we'll get into the fun hollywood treatment um if we were to make a modern day movie based on this book who would you all cast as maya I will go first because um, I had two picks because my first pick was Quivangene Wallace because I absolutely love her so much and I think she would do a great job. Then I learned Wild. that she was – Yes, she was born – and Annie. She was yes. born in 2003 though, which means that she's about 17. So she might be too old to play the younger Maya. So I also had um, Shahadi Wright who was in Hairspray Live and she voiced the part of – young Nala in The Lion King and I think she would be fabulous for the role. I kind of I didn't really mess mine up but I think I might have gone a little bit too old like not like old in 20s but like still I had Yara Shahidi just because I think that she's like an amazing actress and she would like play the role like excellently um but I think she might be like 17 also. Got it yeah and I just wanted like my Maya actress and my uh, Bailey actor to correspond age-wise. I don't think I got it totally right, but I tried my best. Bex, who did you have for Maya? I had Amanda Stenberg, who was in The Hate You Give. Oh, I had her too. But I was also thinking that Blue Ivy would be epic. Oh my goodness. That's oh a great one. I feel like Beyonce and Maya Angelou definitely were like buddies before Maya passed. That's a really... And Beyonce could and Beyonce could be mother. That's dear. a really good one. Is that who you had? Change yours quickly, Bex, for the next round. Change no, I have a great mother dear. Oh, great. Dana, me who too. did you have for Maya? Okay, like, it was hard for me to think of someone because Maya's a real person. Yeah. And I just wanted Maya's Same. younger self to play. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is, like, she's far too old, but Regina King. Okay, maybe for, like, Memoir 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just, like... You do yeah, know she's, so like, funny. six. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was stuck on Maya herself. Who did everyone have for Bailey, her brother? I had Miles Brown. He's from Blackish. He definitely corresponds to the age of Bailey in the book, but not to my older actresses for Maya. But I think he'd be great for Bailey. Yeah, that's a good one. I had Caleb McLaughlin from Stranger Things. Ooh. And um I think that it's a fantastic great. Pick. Wonderful. That's great. I had Lonnie Chavis from This Is Us, which I also think that's that's who I was thinking. So really, so, you like you think mine's a fa- fantastic choice? Yes. Thanks, Mitch. Dana, you're welcome. 
I had Michael D. Jordan. What is wrong with you? I I literally cannot. <laughs> Were you here during this this reading? That is so funny. She never anybody. disappoints. Never. She never disappoints. Okay, who did everyone have for Mama? I had Viola Davis, but I also think that Oprah could be a great choice. Good call. Yeah. Oh, that's a good call. I had Taraji P. Henson. Oh, that's good. I had... I Yeah, I feel like she could do well. I had Octavia Spencer, That's which I one. feel like just is That's a natural great. selection. Mm-hmm. I had Kerry Washington. I think Kerry Washington would be great for Mother Dear. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, because I had Taraji P. Henson for Mother Dear, so maybe I should just switch them. Yeah. Or I'd, just scrap them both. Yeah, or just, just like pay a little bit more attention to the ages. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're worried about picking 17-year-olds, and you're picking Carrie Washington's the grandmother, oh. Taraji P. Henson is the mother, and Regina King is the daughter. Is the daughter. <laughs> Who might be the oldest of them all. I can't. I truly can't. Um, for Mother Dear, I had Kiki Palmer. I know she's a little young for the role. Interesting choice. I know. I just, I, I just feel like she could do a good job. I had Laura Harrier. Me too! Because I... Oh, okay. Because I thought that, like, they describe Mother Deer, she described Mother Deer as, like, just, like, a beautiful, like, just, like, glorious, stunningly beautiful woman. And that's what I think of Laura Me too. Harrier. Great yes, choices, like, everyone. The, the, the lipstick, <laughs> the glam. I was like, wow, showstopper. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great job, guys. So next up, we are each going to rate the book and give this our overall Redheads rating. So I will go first. I gave this book a 4.5. Obviously, this book is a 10 out of 10, like, literary masterpiece, um, just as far as, like, my reading, rating scale and, like, m- what I enjoy reading. It's a 4.5 for me, but, like, it's a 5. Um, but it's a 4.5. <laughs> I gave it a 4.3. Oh, that's great. Bex? Um, I gave it a five, which is the first five that I have doled out. Oh. And I do so without hesitation. I was touched from my fingertips to my toes by this book and by her words. And I don't think I'll stop thinking about it for, like, months to come. And it moved me in a way that I look to be moved by literature. So it was everything to me. It had highs and lows and everything in between and take home messages. Like what more could you want? Yeah. I feel that. I gave it a 4.5. I just thought it was like a fantastic book and a book that I normally wouldn't have chosen, which just goes to show that I need to read better books that aren't just Boy Meets Girl. (laughs) Exactly. That's why we're here, Snitch. Okay. The overall Redheads rating for... I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou is a 4.575. Very. I think that's our highest. I think it's our highest. I think we each gave our highest ratings. I don't think I've given a five yet. I just, like. I feel like I'm never going to give a five. Yeah, I sometimes, like, I give a five on Goodreads, definitely, because when I'm between a four and a five, like this book, I'll give a five on Goodreads. But when I'm able to use a decimal point, I just get a little bit more specific. Mm -hmm. I know I've been holding out a five, but this was everything to me. If like, you're this ever going to give a book, I was holding five. it out. Yeah, yeah. No, this this was that. So that is our recap of this book, Becky. Thank you for choosing it. This was an incredibly moving book. I feel like I learned so much. I have just been spent at the last month 
trying to read as much as possible and educate myself on the stories of black people then, now, and that's a great segue into our next segment, which is the other books that we read this month. I uh, spent the month reading only books from black authors. Obviously, you guys know I love celeb memoirs and fun fiction novels, and I read all of those things. The first book I read was The Chiffon Trenches by Andre Leon Talley, who was the creative director at Vogue, and it is the story of his life. There are a lot of similarities between his memoir and the one that we just read and I, I've picked up on a lot of common themes throughout these books. The book was so good. I mean if you love fashion or a celebrity memoir and a little bit of tea and just great writing I would highly recommend it. I gave the book a four. I really really enjoyed it. Um, he talks a lot about his time in fashion you know in the golden age of fashion his friendship with Karl Lagerfeld. There's a, just so much interesting information as someone who casually keeps up with fashion um I loved it and I highly recommend it the next book I read was we're gonna need more wine by Gabrielle Union it's a collection of short stories I loved it it was so good funny smart everything I love Gabrielle Union it was all these different short stories just summing up her life growing up and some of her stuff in her career and her marriage and it, again, if you love a celebrity book, like this one is it. I gave it a 4.5. I absolutely adored it. And the other book that I read, which was a Dana recommendation, was Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. I really liked this book too. It was a really um, crazy story. I liked how it was written and the characters. And it really sparked like a lot of thoughts in me um, about racism and the different ways that it can take shape so I gave this book a 3.5 because I really like the beginning and I really like the end and the middle if you read the book like Thanksgiving like kind of got me off track but I really liked it so Dana let's throw to you because I want to hear your thoughts on the book that you recommended to me I felt very similarly it caught my interest very early on and towards the end I loved it and the middle was kind of like oh is anything happening like what's going on what I don't even know how I feel I guess that's a note of a good book of like I felt I couldn't sympathize with either character too intensely because they were so flawed and they were aware of the other shortcomings but not mm -hmm. their own so it was it was a maze but I liked it I'd probably give it a 3.0 and the other book I read I absolutely loved like top of the list it's called ask again yes by Mary Beth Keene. I'd give that a 4.6. It was incredible. I would re recommend it to anybody. A masterpiece. Ooh, okay. Maybe I'll read that next. I didn't know what I was going to read next. Thanks. Read Same. It. I read The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abby Dare. Dana! A, a Dana what? recommendation. Oh my a Dana God. recommendation. That is... Oh. Amazing. Phenomenal. <laughs> um, also a Nigerian author. So it was, I mean so eye-opening because I mean it wasn't I don't believe it's like non-fiction but it's definitely taken and rooted in uh the author's own experiences growing up in Nigeria so a thousand percent would recommend I would give it a four out of five um and I also read The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas um which I think the movie was a toast movie of the month so I still haven't read the I haven't watched the movie but I've read the book and it was so amazing like sort of a little bit more YA than I um was expecting but actually not expecting I think I knew it was going to be um and I would also give it a four out of five 
Yes, we just watched that movie. It was so good. I wish I had had time to read the book before I watched the movie. Um, But I'm glad to hear that you read it and that you liked it. Everyone said that the book is so good. So good. Great. Snitch? Honestly, I really didn't read any other books besides this one just because I was, I like started a bunch, but like just was having a really hard time focusing. So I chose to like listen to more things than I did Mm -hmm. read. But I did actually just start after this book, this book called Tell Me Who You Are by Winona, Guo, and Priya Volchi. And it's basically just them, these two authors, sharing their stories of race, culture, and identity. Um, And I I literally just started it last night, but so far so good. And it's just like nice to hear other people's stories. Yeah, great. Okay, everyone. Well, that's that on that. Now Dana is going to share her choice for next month's episode of The Redheads. We know that a Danish choice, we've only had one, but it was... Our most miscellaneous book yet, if you don't remember, it was Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, which I think in like all of the redheads, I don't know, that book just like has stuck with me and I really like, I look back fondly on it. So I look for, you have a really high bar that you set for yourself. I look forward to your next choice. What is it? The next redhead book choice is called My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. I hope it's good because I honestly didn't research it that much because I wanted to be surprised and not know everything before reading as I do. So it was a risk, but I hope it's good. Um, Josh's mom, my mother and my future mother-in-law recommended it to me and she works in book publishing. So I trusted her blindly and hopefully it's good. Okay, great. Well, I trust that. That's a good source. I trust that too. I'm excited. I looked it up briefly and it looked really intriguing and it had really good reviews. So that's all we can really ask for from a Goodreads profile. It was also just published. Oh, great. I love really being, you know, in the middle of when the conversation is going on. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for reading, participating. Thank you to the Redheads community for also participating in this with us. Thank you to Rebecca for choosing it. Um, This has been a really great episode, and I missed you guys. This was the longest we went without doing an episode in a while. Oh, I missed you guys too. But I think this is right for us. Oh, yeah, we got to do it again soon. <laughs> yeah, we got to do it once a, mu- once a month. Yeah, that's the way to go. Definitely. Okay, well, I hope everyone has a good weekend. A happy 4th of July. Have a safe holiday weekend. And we will see you next month, the first Thursday of the month. Bye. 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 Bye.